break for the University of Toronto Scarborough with those that come with an idea to explore and bring it to you know, my door. And so far, I've been able to operate quite quite well that way. And the university has stepped up to make that a reality. They've committed. We have a space. We have staff. We have budget. We have results that just speak for themselves. Okay, Greg Grafham, you're here with us for episode number 100. Um, we're celebrating a milestone together, <laughs> as we usually yeah. have done. Uh, I really wanted you for episode 100, uh, because just as I mentioned before uh, we came on, um, the hub where all this kind of started, you know, my, my personal entrepreneurial journey really started there um, in a professional sense, is itself a startup. It's an incubator at the University of Toronto, um, one of 13 in the University of Toronto, but the only one in the uh, University of Toronto at Scarborough. And Scarborough's only main source of uh, incubation for 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 um, startups. Um, I always saw thought myself as someone who accidentally ran into the into the hub as like something always looking for resources, and this magical place just kind of appeared. Uh, and I really want to take today's episode to capture that story of how the hub as an incubator came to be, but also the story behind it, yours. Um, so great, thanks for joining us, man. Oh, well, thanks for having me. Yeah. And it's quite the honor. And I do remember that day uh, <laughs> when you knocked on that, that door and you were the first person to actually come to the hub uh, when I had opened the doors and say, hey, I, 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 is, this, is this like, is this the hub? Is this like a place I can like build a business? <laughs> and I, I said, well, yeah, absolutely. And we had a journey from that point on. So, and that was like seven years ago. Definitely. Amazing. Amazingly, right? Seven years ago. But uh, almost, almost eight. But what it comes down to, what I'd like to uh, also convey is where we are right now mm-hmm. in terms of what the hub is and what makes it distinct, what makes it different. Because that's part of the story is when you create a facility, when you create an incubator, when you create the hub, what do you create? And how then do you go about doing that? And the whole idea was to do something that would be created organically and have something that would work for the University of Toronto Scarborough, but also something that would be distinctive or unique in its own right. So, I mean, there are all sorts of models that are out there. And I had come from Waterloo at the time that I created the hub here. And yeah, sure, I mean, I I knew some of the other models and I could have dropped that in or tried to. But there are reasons that that may not have worked in terms of this particular environment. There are some things that need to be very um, done a certain way and with a certain heart in terms of things. So I remember, for example, uh, having a, a conversation with the director of Creative Destruction Lab at the time when that was being set up. And hang on just a second. I don't know if you can hear background yeah, noise. Yeah. Or not. You can? It's all yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. Well, they're just heading downstairs. Um, yeah. do- dog and, and son and mm-hmm. doggy treats. <laughs> <laughs> and there they go. Okay. So just... Um, that might be an awkward editor or not. 
But when you go to set up the hub, you wanted to, I wanted to create something that was unique in its own right. So where we've come, just to very fast forward to, the, to where we are and how we're different than things. When I created the hub just before that, I had had a conversation with the director at that point of Creative, Creative Destruction Lab. And this person had also created other incubators and I was seeking some advice. And the advice was, you know, bring them in, give them milestones. They don't hit the milestones, kick them out. Don't, uh, don't stop, don't have a heart, don't have a second thought about it. Move on, get the next person in, uh, put your resources directly to bear to that that matters. I remember leaving that conversation and going, no, that is not how this place is gonna work. Mm. So part of it is to have the passion to care for each and every startup that comes in. Also, it's not to have it go through a set, like here's all the different things that you must do. Okay, now you're done, out you go. We don't work on that model. Mm. We created a community and the community is one that has different facets to it. But the part of it is that people who have graduated from the hub are part of that. People who have gone through in the previous cohort are part of that. People who are coming in are part of that. And so it creates this space in which there's an awful lot of activity and vibe that's going on. Right now, there are 50 companies that are in the hub, 50. It's never been as packed as it's been before. And a lot of that is to do with what we're offering. So when you say about the start, and if we go back to that, the start, the start is really attributed to a fellow by the name of Andrew Arafuzan. Mm -hmm. Andrew is the chief administrative officer of University of Toronto Scarborough. And back in around 2012, he was looking for how to get a facility in place for the students at the university, students at the campus that would embrace entrepreneurship and startups and, and also this kind of co-curricular thing. Um, he had the idea that it would be something that, well, we'll just see kind of where it goes. And he hired me and brought me from Waterloo and said, great, we're really not sure what, the facil what this facility should be. We're really not sure if it will succeed and where and how, uh, but we're going to be very uh, uh, excited to see you try. So with that, it was like, okay, I have a mandate to try to bring in a facility and make it work. So what are the things that are different about U of T Scarborough? Well, for one, um, it does not have an engineering school present on campus. So there's not a direct and immediate, like boom, it's tied into the engineering. Another part of the mandate was to make it work for everyone, for all disciplines uh, across, you know, across the board. So for arts and social science, science and management, for have, have it all of that kind of work. And at the time it was like, a, here's a space that you can use. It's a space that's supposed to be a restaurant, but we haven't got a restaurant in there yet. And uh, we're not sure if we will, but uh, yeah, why don't you just, you know, use this space and get it going. We'll throw some furniture in there and you can 
kind of get things going. So the scramble was to figure out where to start, how to start. And it was under-resourced, um, but it was just that all that meant is that there was a challenge for me to find, well, how to connect the different pieces to make it all work. Luckily, there are a number of people that were uh, strongly supportive all along the time in that phase of things. The, the dean at the time was very strongly in favor, and there was a lot of support for letting it try to find its, its way. So that's how the hub, in essence, took form. But one of the things that helped it to turn it into an incubator and its entrepreneurial space was when the Ontario government came up with, through the Centers of Excellence, uh, came up with its program of sponsorship for entrepreneurship. I was part of that. I was tied in with the rest of the University of Toronto in terms of that, and we created a number of incubators at the different campuses, and the hub was recognized as one of them. And then it was a matter of, okay, now we have some money to operate. We have some money for doing student awards. We have some money for doing events. We have some money for getting some programming in place. And then let's get some things worked out for that. So we've had a competition each year, uh, as you know, and it's been exciting. It's brought all sorts of attention in terms of within the university campus for students to take part. And it's been wonderful. It's brought people from all, all disciplines with all sorts of different ideas. So another aspect of its uniqueness is how do you handle everything coming from all over the place when it's somebody coming from the arts, somebody coming from bio, somebody coming from environmental science, somebody's coming up and management, you know, computer science, and all coming in with some things that are very, very different. Some people want to create services. Some people want to create apps. Some people have a product they have in mind to create. So it's very, very diverse. And you have to be able to skate a number of different directions quite quickly with these different startups. So its uniqueness is in part its ability to handle that diversity. So one-on-one -on -one coaching is a huge part, as well as a, as well as sort of a here are the events, here are the the guest speakers, here are the, you know, things that we're going to talk about. Um, for example, today uh, we had one that was just big on sales and scaling, and we want people to understand very early on that getting some revenue is probably a good idea <laughs> to get some things moving. So we're focusing on scale, on, on scaling, we're focusing on sales, we're focusing on getting things moving that way. Um, so there is a program, sales, marketing, scaling, um, business practices, best practices, team formation, um, stakeholder analysis of, of, sort, of sorts. Um, you know, uh, what are the basic principles for going from one stage to the next? Uh, what's the role in, of investment? Um, how do you get investment if you're interested in going that route? Uh, what does it look like if you don't and you decide to bootstrap and do something that way? So I'm not sure if I've touched on the answer to your question enough. Uh, you asked, how did the hub come into being? A different answer to this is it came into being through each and every individual entrepreneur who crossed its threshold because each entrepreneur 
who came, each founder, brought with them something that is added to the community, added to the facility, and added to the overall experience. So yes, it's something that, well, what do I bring to it for I'm fine. But it's also what each and every startup brings to it. And that's the difference. That's the difference that really makes a difference. For example, there's a follow. Um, came to the hub, wanted to do a startup with scooters. And I'm, I'm looking at them and I'm trying to figure out, number one, how does this kind of work? You know, he wants to do a scooter company like Lime, but that's a big challenge. And I'm wondering, has he read something? Is he just kind of, you know, wanting be, to get involved in this because it's very exciting and he likes the space and he likes scooters or, or what? And it turns out after I have a very brief meeting with him that no, and indeed, he's been involved in this space. His family's been involved in this space since the very outset in terms of making scooters. He wanted to make his own and then launch that business to operate that, then bring it to, um, as he's done, to Kelowna, BC, to Calgary, to Ottawa, and then ramping it out and going from there. He's been extraordinarily successful. So part of it is to recognize, well, when each person comes in front, what is it about them that is that key advantage that really differentiates and makes it distinct for them that they have a, a chance for success. So that's one instance. But with everyone, it's that kind of thing. I remember when you came to the hub and I asked you, what is it that you want to do? And you at the time had said, well, I've had this idea since high school and I want to create this particular experience online. I want to have it where we bring what is going on around us onto an app that we know we can get involved in the events that matter around us in real time and have them sort of disappear over time and we get some other events and have everybody sort of get involved in a very active living thing. You were very, very passionate about that. And it was through no fault of your own that that very technology was being worked on then by Snapchat and they bought a, a company, and, and not yours, unfortunately, but they bought a company and, and made that all work. But you were extraordinarily passionate. That passion has been your foundation. That passion has led to the form, foundation and the forming of Lumex. And it, it's been any number of things that you're involved in in the course of doing all that. So. We have on um, in presence here a serial entrepreneur, someone who goes from, you know, this, very, very excited about this, makes that successful or not, but in the case of the first one, but then goes to the next one. Well, okay, that one didn't work out, but that, well, you know, let's bring this passion and these learning skills to this one. And you've been extraordinarily successful in terms of doing that. And that's part of it too, is to recognize that uh, not everybody succeeds, but what you learn in the process is extraordinary for where it will take you. Uh, and some people, they find that, um, and one of the things that was being discussed this morning is how do people learn? And there's a thought about, well, 
you know, we learn a little bit through our success, but we learn a lot through our failures. So the hub is a space where you can explore at an early stage. You can succeed or you can fail. Uh, and if you do fail, not, not a bad thing. Uh, just pick yourself up, dust yourself off, and go forward uh, again. But we try, you know, try to make a number of success stories as we go. So I'm probably rambling a little bit, but uh, help, help me out here. How do you yeah. see the story of the hub in terms of how you see it? So one of my most distinct memories is walking into this building for the first time, not knowing what it is, this shiny building that showed up with like 15, 20 foot long, like ceilings. Uh, everything looks brand new, bought an amazing furniture inside, completely empty. And it says doors open, come on in, like, you know, open, uh, open door night. And I come in, and I see this sign on the side of the building, uh, and, and then on the wall inside saying the hub, ideation and experiential learning center. And at the time, I have no idea what that means. It just seems like fancy words. But it was something that's been stuck in my mind, always running my head. Ideation, experiential learning. What is experiential learning? Like, I've, I've never heard that. I know what ideation is, coming with ideas. But experiential learning, learning through doing things. Like I knew what these words distinctly meant, but why it was on the side of the wall didn't mean, mean. And it took me a few years, and it, kept, and it came back came to me in, in, in ways. And it perfectly describes what the hub is. It's literally on the wall. It's a place where you can ideate, come up with ideas, and learn through, through the application of them, to doing them. And the, the ideas might work on might evolve and change, but the whole point is to learn and develop and getting better at that. How to give up with ideas and deploy them into the world. And that's what I saw that as was. And that's what I got classical training from the hub is, is that companies, uh, by essence, other than the legal framework and the products and the hardcore substance behind them, it's literally stories that you kind of deploy into the world uh, to make an idea into reality. And one of the things I, I've always really appreciated about the hub was just the, the validation it provides, right? More than anything else, more than the training, more than anything. Here was this place where you can come in and do something that everyone else tells you is crazy or telling you that might be wasting your time or like, you know, something that you should do oh, on the let's, side. Let's, or, let's take a look at this. Yeah. And it's like, show. no, come on in. Here's a club of everyone who's doing some crazy stuff, who's taking a pause out of the rest of their life, who's putting like you know, double, triple the amount of hours that you're, that's healthy in, in a week into working on one particular thing. And they want to solve problems. And the fact that everyone's doing that, they come from different backgrounds, they're working on different problems. Right. But the validation it gives that your stupid idea that's been bugging you, it's not completely useless. It, it, there could be some validity in it. So take the time to work on it. Right. And exactly what you said, like the, to be fair, like the hub and the, uh, versus CDL. CDL is like an acceleration center where it's like, Okay, here's something you refine. You have a business, accelerate it, move, 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 right? And if you don't, you're out. You know, you're kicked out. You got to keep up, keep up with certain traction. But the hub, the hub is like the gym. You know, you go there and you get progressively better. Right. Some people are further along. Some people are naturally more progress. You know, a mm -hmm. process to you know get stronger and fitter. Other people take some more time. But here was this common place you can come together and just work out. You know, work out well, and comparing uh, it. Comparing it to a gym is just perfect. Yeah. Because you're right. I mean, we think about a gym. And some people go and and they're they're you know really good and they're buffed and they they can do all sorts of things you know all sorts of presses and they can do all that or they're a swimmer they can do all these kinds of laps or whatever and then the other people go to a gym and gee you know it's uh, I haven't been making the progress I've wanted to make or last oh, geez you know it's taking me a little longer uh, and the hub is exactly that sort mm -hmm. of experience it's one of people work at their own pace. 
when you have students and when you have recent alumni, you have people with different capacity to do things at different pace. Students are doing a full course load. Their ability to lift a company at the same time, very, very limited. When you graduate, now it's a time, well, I can focus on this. I can put 40, 50 more hours, 60 hours a week into what I'm doing. I can lift this company. I can get really serious about this. Whereas, you know, so you have people working at different paces going through. Now, in terms of some of the folks that have been very successful, and you know one of them, Stage Feet with Axel. And Axel was on your podcast um, yep. in terms of things. And when you think about that, and you think about him, his start was taking my course in media, in media studies, and me convincing him, oh, come on over to the hub and, and let's kind of like talk about some of these ideas. And then when it got time for him to graduate, he got very serious about, okay, I want to create a company. I want to take it somewhere. I want to have the best software for choreographers that we can design. And this is what I'm going to do. So yeah, that's indicative of not just how does somebody find their idea, but it's also indicative of when are people ready to actually click in and engage. So you can come to the hub, you can percolate these ideas, you can, you can think about what it is that you're doing. You can do the research that needs to be done. You can do the research with either myself or now with Donovan, or you can do this with the library. And the library is really good at various of the databases that they have available. But you can really begin to percolate. Well, yeah, interesting. This is what the market is like. This is what the opportunity looks like. This is how I'm going to bring my idea into, into being and how I'm going to approach that market. And you can plan and take steps along to forming that. And when you go to, to graduate, when you get into your last year, when you have a lot more time, then yes, now you can make things kick. Not everybody does it the same way. Um, I have a mic quiet because there's noise in the background. That's fine. Not everybody does it the same way. For example, there are incubators. The very first question when you come to them, how are you going to monetize that idea? Right? And it's, oh, if you don't have the answer, we're going to do this, this, this. Right? If you don't have that answer straight away, it's like, goodbye, or we're not going to take you. That is not the first question I ask people. The first question I ask people is, what's the problem that you're working on? What, what is it you care about? What is it you want to solve? What, what impact do you want to make? Right? And why? And then after they tell me, like with Richard, it was, well, you know, I want to do scooters. I want to do mobility. I, you know, I'm, I'm interested in creating a company that can solve the problem of the last mile after you get off the bus or wherever you're going. It's then to figure out, well, why does that problem belong to you? What's the fit, right? What's the fit? What's the unique aspect, the killer advantage that you have, that you bring to what it is that you're doing? For Axel, for Stage Keep, this guy's a phenomenal dancer. 
He's been dancing since he was eight years old. He's, he's been working with choreographers. He's been putting on shows. He's, he has the passion for exactly what he's doing and he knows the problems associated with it. Perfect, perfect. If I went and tried to do stage keep, I wouldn't be able to bring that, that kind of headspace and understanding to the problem. I haven't been there. Right. So what is it that makes you the person to solve that idea? It's critical. It's critical because when you have that killer advantage, that's one of the key aspects to success. A lot of people think that it's money. You're right. It's money. Money's the, not money's the answer. With with money, all all good. And no, in my opinion, uh, money's a factor. It's not that it's meaningless, <laughs> but the most critical factor for success, as I've seen it, in terms of we've done 200 companies, most critical factor is that passion and how much you own the solution, how much you own that for being able that killer advantage to bring that into, into play and to make that difference. So a lot of people, I mean, they have ideas. Everybody has ideas. And they think, oh, this is a million dollar idea. This, I, this idea will change the world. It's a wonderful idea. Well, having an idea is definitely part, but until you recognize that it's what you bring to the idea and what ad advantage you bring to the idea and what commitment you bring and what passion you bring to then executing on that, that's the difference. Right? That is absolutely what makes or breaks the early stage in terms of its success yeah like you know a few key things to construct there you know um one taking that time to like identify what, what your key differentiators are your, your unique selling you know unique value proposition what makes you different and part of that is, is stuff that the, the the founder brings into that problem um, one of the key things i've learned uh, from the hub early on is you know the idea of competitors being a good thing that if, some, if you're not in a space where there's competitors, that it might be a bad thing that you're doing something that no one else is thinking of, might not be an actual right. problem. But if there's actual competitors and there's a, there's a problem set to be here to be solved and refined, and you might have something better than your competitors. Um, and I really enjoyed. But going back to some foundations, um, you know, um, you know, you 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 talking about uh, meeting the first person to knock on the the the, the, the hub's door, right? right. Um, that was probably the 40th or 50th door I knocked in UFT looking for solutions for my problem. Oh, wow. yeah. um, you know, so when I first came up with this idea, this mapping, a map-based social network, you know, the idea of mapping things out by geography and be able to move a map around. Okay. Yeah. Hang on just a second. My dog's scratching at a door here and he's just going <laughs> to oh. continue to do that. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, no worries. So ba backing up, you yeah. knocked on 50, 50 doors. Absolutely. I'm you like, how? Yeah. So my my question was, how am I going to launch a tech company? You know, I saw the power. Like, you know, 2013 was when I I came, I came and found the hub. During that time is when I wanted to launch this company. Um, you know, the mobile revolution was kicking into high gear. You know, it was the first wave of like app-based companies were blowing up. 
you know, Facebook's taken over the world. Uh, Instagram was one of the biggest buyouts in, in tech history, right? And we were seeing this development of the app ecosystems coming up. And I'm like, I want to make a play into this. But how would I, who has no background in, in programming, you know, with like a life science degree, uh, having no friends that really like program or code in that, in that space, how would I navigate the space? I had no idea. So naturally, I went to the computer science department, knocked on all those doors, asked professors, like, hey, I want to start an app. How would I, how would I start? And they gave me this blank look, like, why are you here? Like, what, what are you asking me, right? And they were like, go talk to this person. And funny enough, back then, like, uh, before I had the name Mappian or anything, I knew what I wanted to do. I, I knew, I don't know, I, I had to join, uh, start a company, I don't know what to name it, I don't know how to, how I was going to build it, but I knew the problem. So the problem at the time, I kind of identified as a, as a crowdsourced, a geotagged social uh, mm-hmm. social media, right? So I had this, like, acronym for it, so get a, right, like, yeah. this horrible name, but I printed out a red yeah. card with that title on it with my name. <laughs> and I would go around handing it out to like any resource I can find. This is the beginning of like Toronto's texting. There was no real institutionalized knowledge or even much articles or information about how do you launch a tech company? There was not much information. Uh, the only thing that really was, was going on Twitter and following people who are, who are doing it in the Valley. In Toronto, was, everything was new. So I was going around handing out these cards, trying to talk to as many people as possible. And there was a point where UFT computer science department, they would see me coming and be like, the red, cor- red card guy's here, the red card guy's here. And professors would close their door, I would see it. And, our, and, the, and the day that happened was when I was like, what the hell is happening? Like, you know, I'm here trying to find, like, trying to find this answer. Like, how do I start an app? Where, where do I go? I need, to, I need someone to push me in the right direction. And I was coming down from the third uh, the floor of the computer science building. Now the manage, now that it's purely management building, but then computer science and managers in there. And I came downstairs and there was this, on the ground floor, this shiny building that says the hub, doors are open, it says front was open. And I would walk in there. And exactly what I see, you know, the, I see the hub's uh, door um, signed there, tw- uh, 15 to 20 foot ceilings, right? Everything's brand new, amazing furniture. And I run smack into you, uh, a Viking of a professor, <laughs> you know, six foot three, uh, you know, just, just telling me about, oh, this is a space to work on ideas. And I was just blown away. I'm like, what? what you, I, I feel like I was like, you know, those, you know those times where you feel like you're, it's almost like you're doing something illegal. Like, what do you, what do you mean? <laughs> like, you're telling me I just got a sign here, and I can come here okay. with key, for, key, uh, key access to a closed door environment where it's like it's okay for me to work on whatever I want to work on. Uh, you know, you might not have all the right. the answer, but you know, together we'll figure it out. You know, that's along the lines that you told me this, right? It's like, you know. And um, I didn't re- actually realize I was the first one. All I knew was that I had a place now where I can validly work on a, a concept. Maybe not get the answers directly, but I remember sitting at the hub for maybe 80 hours a week for all of that summer, 2013 summer, or 2014 summer, the year after, I'm not sure. But like basically sitting there and just writing down the idea, like all the problems that I needed. Like, I don't know that I know. I think we called it the unknown unknowns. What don't you know that you know that you need to know, mm-hmm. right? Without writing out all these questions and then going and researching it. And then each question led to like, you know, branched out on three, four more questions. And I was just mapping out all these different things I would need to know to then start this company. And that time that, you know, to break down this problem of understanding Understanding, uh, you know, software, understanding design, understanding how how uh, human uh, humans use a computer, like you know, uh, phones, and how to map things out, how to build usability into an app, how how functionality works, you know, what it takes to build build things, like you know, then also how to build a company, how VC capital works, like mm-hmm. all these different factors you need to get to to solve the main problem, underlying problem, 
And Hub gave me time and more than that validation to work on it. And slowly the place got filled up, you know, over over a period of time into more other people working on different things. And just being able to walk around and be like, hey, what are you working on? You know, and they're talking about some other problem, you know. Uh, you know, one of the one of my biggest mind blasts was walking into uh, Will and his original co-founder working on Alpha something like yeah. they were working on this file sharing system, a distributed file sharing system where if yeah, you download, Matt. yeah, Matt, yeah. right, Matt and Nolan. they literally had a bunch of servers set up in the corner of the room, like their okay. own private network running, and they were just hacking away day and night. And they're trying to create the system where you can have a distributed file sharing network that anywhere you go in, any computer you go on in the world, you can go in, you know, put in a key and boom, magically they'll pull files from different sources from different computers. And you can have a distributed like file sharing network yeah. with your, with, with like, it's like, it's like, it's like torrents plus Google Drive put together. And they built the damn thing, right? They did. They did. Right? And, and they were working on like super hardcore problems that's just for like, you know, for, for the theory of it. And I'm like, this um, is freaking crazy. Ran into Axel, who's working on, you know, StageKeep at the time. You know, this is a guy who's a dancer who also happens to be a computer scientist, who also happened to have a photography company, now working on app to make, you know, that, you know, okay. choreography better. Um, you know, all these different people came from different industries and started building their own things. And it was just like a mosh pit of just ideas and people okay. and people grinding through it. And I can't take ever take back that experience because it was probably one of the best moments of my life initially grinding through it out. So having that as a as like as a background, it just made me like made me full gear into this because Mapping at that time was my third company, third company I started at UFT, right? I started I started my first company at seventeen uh, at two thousand eight when the financial oh, crisis right. happened, yeah, yeah. right? I remember. Yeah. And and one of the main reasons that failed was lack of knowledge, lack of mentorship. I was CFO of that company. I remember that summer we made like like you know. Uh, made some good money. Yeah, we, we made some yeah. good money with that company, but like like I was CFO with like a, a with a grade eleven accounting <laughs> course Never. knowledge, Never. and I, I didn't have a space to go to learn more. And this is before smartphones, before even through like you know before smartphones were the things. You can't even Google on the pocket on the go, right? So like I, I like I experienced the problem of like one not having you know a mobile system, so that led to like pro you know understanding the problem set of how mobile based information systems are great and, and can solve problems, maybe more more appreciative of mapping as a, as a problem set. But two, understanding the need for like mentorship and support and just having an environment where you can bounce ideas and, 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 and gain knowledge, the unknown unknowns is so important, right? Because experiencing failure of a company at a young age makes you more appreciative. And one of the things that I always, uh, like, uh, like I feel like I was a leg up is that I failed fast and I failed young so that it always gave me a chip on the shoulder. So by the time I came to the hub event, I was just so determined because I was like, here's this place finally where I can go and get some support, right? And okay. funny enough, like, you know, talking about support, talking about the hub, like, you know, me and me and Axel actually still laugh about this, right? Because we talked about the support we received. Like, you know, we got all these training courses, you know, you brought Mars Discovery District in to do training situations on on um, on how to do pitches and the lean startup and, and had pitch nights, all these okay. things. But more than that, what really the resource the hub provided was you, the uh, the the Papa Bear, right? The the yeah. person you can go to yeah. and you can just like whine and bitch about your idea. Like one of my one of my most distinct memories, Gray, of you and the hub, is I remember I had this math. I, I can't remember the exact problem, but I had a, I had this a huge problem where someone wanted to give me money, but I didn't know if I wanted. Oh, yeah. I don't know yeah. the terms. Oh yeah, I remember. Like, like you know they yeah. wanted. I had all this. I came to you. It I'm like, it was no. a bad deal. It was, it was a, a bad deal. 
It was a bad yeah. deal. And I'm like, Let's but talk about that for just a second. Yeah. Because this is still happening out in the uh, ecosystem. Mm. So when when startups are eager for taking money, they very well might be tempted in the pre-seed round to be accepting of a deal where somebody comes forward and says, "I will, I will give you. I will. I, I believe in you. <laughs> I will. I will give you. I will invest into you. Uh, Fifty thousand dollars or a hundred thousand dollars in value, in kind, mm. right? not not in cash, but in all all sorts of things that we do well, right? Marketing materials and all sorts of sponsorship opportunities and uh, guidance on this and you know whatever they can throw in there. And um, we'll have then we'll we'll get our money back, you know later. Um, you know, when you get your, your seed round coming in, um, you know, we'll all work out and we'll exit at that point. And if you just think about it, well, that doesn't sound bad. But here's what it is when, when it's done wrong and when this is what was being offered to you. Mm. It was when somebody says, oh, I will, I will contribute into you. I think it was $25,000 worth of stuff. It wasn't very much, but it all boiled down like cotton candy. It all melted down. When you really looked at how much this was going to cost this individual, it was something like four or $5,000 maybe. But they were evaluating it, what they were giving to you, at $25,000. Right? Mm-hmm. And that they were going to, when they exited, they were going to take out you know, 50 so on the basis of having given you four, they're going to take out 50. And the clause that was in the contract that was so objectionable was that they had um, first creditor status for first to exit. In other words, they would get the money mm. out before you would get the money. So they were going to take this money out from you. And from the seed money that you would have desperately needed and earned. And they were going to take their stuff. In other words, it was a scam. It was, here's five $5,000 at most of stuff, really hard stuff that we're contributing in, but we're telling you it's worth a lot more. We're inflating it. And we're going to take your hard-earned seed money when you get it. We're going to get in front of you. We're going to be first creditor and get in front of you before you get your money. And when we saw that language together, and you you knew at the time, you said, Greta, something doesn't seem right about this contract. I'm, I'm not, you know, what do you think? And I said, no, this is a bad, bad contract. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, like the amount of services they're offering right now would have been worth like, you know, like 0.4% of like a mentor's five hours, like, like a high-end mentor working like five hours a week, a month for a startup, you know, providing some mentorship value that, that can solve. And they're taking, they're taking like, you know, we're going to do accounting work for you. We're going to do this kind of services, operation help. They're overselling it. And one of the miraculous things about that was like, you know, I remember going back and forth, we discussing this and we discussed this, we went to the merits of it. But one of the most distinct memories I have is like when I came in, like, it was bugging me because I was drowning with a lack of lack of knowledge, right? Because I don't know tech, I don't know how to launch this thing. I had this problem I want to solve. I was itching to get it out there. I know I if I like if I was first, it'll be it'll be, it'll be like a huge boon. And 
you know, I remember this, this image of you just one day I came in super anxious, just like, you know, blurting about all these different things. And you calmly sit down, sat down, listen, and then you completely switch topics and start talking about a story from like, you know, some, you know 10 years ago, 20 years ago uh, from a professional experience you had. And, you know, com some complete random story. And you sat there and you're talking and I'm just there like, what does this got to do with what I'm talking about? But you just kept talking. And you talk for about a good 15, 20 minutes until like, the, I'm no longer anxious. I'm just like, I'm just super confused until it, my, you know, everything kind of calmed down. And the way you structured the story was that, you know, shit happens. Here's the story of when shit happened and we got over, we got through it. And the, and then you finished the story and you just turned and you just looked at me and smiled. Like that's it. And then it just like, it just kind of started molded in the room. It's like shit happens what are you going to do about it? Like, how, how are you going to respond? And it just lingered there. And I just remember it being like, okay, you know, like stuff happens to everybody. This is just one, one part of the path. Right. And that kind of mentorship is like, is when you're like on alpha mode, when you, when you, when you, when you realize that it's not actually the problem in front of the person is how people are treating that problem. Right. The emotional state, because when, when you're so invested in a company and like there's so many things happening, you know, you have parents at home that are relying on you to, you know, go to university, get that income there, you know, this pressure from there. You have you know, a girlfriend who has certain expectations. You know, you're in that young age where you're trying to like, you're trying to thrive and you have, you have all these ambitions and drive and you're taking the time to work on this idea that itself has, uh, has potential. This high pressure environment, emotions get mixed into it really quickly. And one of the key factors that you are able to play is that, hey, you know, you're experiencing this right now, but, you know, how to remove yourself from it. Right. You, you've, got, you've got me. You got me pegged. Um, mm -hmm. Let me explain a bit of the style. Yeah. Um, when people are really involved in the emotion of the conflict or whatever it is, the problem that they're dealing with, mm -hmm. um, you can try to advise them directly on point about that, which I do as well. But another technique, especially when somebody's really, really hot, mm -hmm. is to deflect it over by being a related story. It's, it's on point, but it's not directly confrontational to you and what you're dealing with immediately in the heat of the moment, you know, impassioned and all that. So I work a little sideways and bring in a, a story, hopefully of relevance, that talks about a situation that's somewhat parallel or somewhat has some reason that I'm bringing that forward. There's some learning they come from that, uh, which is to be directly brought to bear on things. But that's how I do do that. And it's because to do some things in a different way might end up being somewhat confrontational. This is my way of providing an educational you know, bit of information in a context that is less confrontational because it's not about the case in point that's immediately in front of them. Mm. So hopefully it's not just some random story which is just completely like off the topic, but it's it's something which is relevant, or at least I see the relevance to it in terms of how this comes in to play for why this is something that we should really think about here. So it's bringing up an example to bring in that that's non-threatening, a different example from a different it, situation with different people, but that from that learning, 
now we understand what happened over there. Okay, now how can we take from that learning and now bring that into ourselves for what it is that we're supposed to draw from that and then take that learning and bring it to bear on the problem that we're addressing. That is how I work, particularly in hot situations. So yeah, I don't like confronting. I don't like, um, it's not, not my style. Mm -hmm. Just definitely not my style. I don't think it's my role and I don't think it's the best way that people learn either. Yeah. I don't want to get yelling match with somebody mm -hmm. about, and there are times there have been entrepreneurs. Again, we've had 200 companies go through that. There have been some of those entrepreneurs who have been extraordinarily stubborn and stubbornness when it comes to being an entrepreneur is a valued commodity. Mm -hmm. It leads you places when directly uh, sort of channeled. But it can also be, besides being a great asset, it can be your Achilles heel. It can be the worst thing. It can be like why you're not adapting or changing or, or you know, looking at something and turning it a different way to maybe approach it differently. It can get you stuck and stuck in a really, really horrible way because you're so stubborn to not move off of that plate. Mm. So how do you move somebody who's stubborn? Well, you know, uh, what am I going to do? Uh, you know, walk up to them and, and yell and scream at them? No, I can't do that. So it's a matter of just keeping and bringing into play examples of, of things that are relevant and, and showing, well, in this instance, this is what happened here, with the hope that this will begin to nudge somebody past uh, an impasse, otherwise an impasse. That sometimes has worked, um, sometimes hasn't. So, uh, but it is a style. It's just a, a way of, of kind of being. I like the hub to be a place that has uh, a lot of excitement, a lot of people contributing in, a lot of one-on-one -on -one coaching in private um, that helps to guide and to steer, a lot of examples, a lot of speakers coming to talk about their journey, and maybe they're like two years or five years ahead of everybody else and people go oh yeah well gee if, if he or she can do it well darn I, I i guess i can whereas if i talk about me doing it well you know uh, there's too much of a gap but somebody who's in their 20s or early 30s and they have the success going perfect so we have that on the go we have a speaker series we have a fireside chat series we have a workshop, interactive workshop series. And now that interactive workshop series, what, what do I mean by that? Well, when you come, it's not being lectured at because I, you know, I found that, maybe I found the hard way, but being lectured at for entrepreneurs is not the right way. Having them dig in and get their hands kind of, you know, into yeah. something, that's the right way. Yeah. And having them apply it and then take the learning through the application, that's the right way. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a very hands-on. So when you talked about experiential, yeah, this is the experiential. We get involved doing something. So the people who are coming to do the interactive workshops, they'll, we're, we're on Zoom. We do the breakout rooms. We put people into the different breakout rooms. We give them an assignment. And they're to execute on that assignment with somebody else in an interactive way 
uh, in a learning way in that breakout room. They have maybe 15 minutes to do so. It could be that person one has to make a deal with person two. And then there's a whole background in terms of the case study kind of approach. These are the things that are motivating person one. They need to get this deal. They have to get it a certain price. Here's what's motivating person two. They're really kind of want to make the deal, but they, you know, they want to make it on their terms. And maybe there's something else that they need. And then can these people actually come about and do a negotiation together? Because negotiation was that what that workshop was all about. Mm-hmm. So get, getting people to talk to each other and make a negotiation. Then, okay, end of the breakout, everybody comes back. Well, so did you make a deal? Did you negotiate? Were you successful? And time after time after time, they have been. But how they've been successful has varied a lot. Mm-hmm. Some people have been more forceful in terms of getting better deals. Others have been less so. so you know, all that, but it's a great learning experience. And then you comment back because everybody's sharing on what deal they got. And so somebody's wondering, oh, the heck did they get that deal? Wow, that's a pretty, you know. So there's a lot of learning that comes into bearing there. And those skills are something that then applies back to what they're doing when they're negotiating with their team or they're negotiating with clients over contracts or they're negotiating some other aspect of partnership or merger or something. All these things come into bear. So we go through these kinds of interactive. So it's not just sitting there and like we, I mean, we do that at, at the university, right? You sign up for a course and you're coming in, you listen to the class. There will be reading. There might be a class presentation. There might mm-hmm. be some, you know, um, interactive components there too. But by and large, the university system is still one of lecturing at people. And entrepreneurs, I don't think, really respond best mm. in that environment. I mean, yes, the concepts are important to learn, but they're important really to apply. So, but here's the hands-on. Here's the chance to make this real by making it apply to you. So others have to do with sales and sales strategy. Others have to do with marketing and marketing strategy. Uh, others have to do, you know, and it's all the same thing. We break out, we go through, here's the exercise, put the pieces together, come back. How did it work for you? And it's peer to peer to the extent that it's entrepreneur to entrepreneur, you know, doing these things together, but then coming back. And then the, the whole thing is to transfer that knowledge, transfer it to the direct problem of what it is that we're doing right here. So that's some of the ways that the hub has grown a bit in terms of the programming that it offers. And then there's the one-on-one coaching that we still do all on, on the side. And that that's exciting. That gets really into the the heart of what is what's what's the hurdle? What's what's stopping this from being a success? You know, we all have fears. Mm-hmm. And entrepreneurs have years for sure and we tend to cover them up quite well uh maybe it's bravado maybe it's we're so self-assured maybe it's that we 
our, we're convincing ourselves maybe we just that kind of mentality of this is what we're going to do. We're just going to push forward. But there are fears. And when it's the one-on-one, -on -one, a lot of those fears come forward. Then it's a matter of the more that, that people can drop the pretense, the more they can actually talk about what they are afraid of, that's at the point when we can like dispel those fears and get people to understand, well, here's how, how you kind of take steps on this to make this happen. Mm -hmm. The greatest fear that I, I think people have in the early stage of entrepreneurship is over launching, launching and going live. Mm -hmm. It is the greatest fear. It is the largest hurdle when you're going from idea to business in that early stage, that is the greatest fear. It's the fear that everything I've thought will maybe be proven to be wrong. That my thinking that there's going to be this great success maybe will come as a crushing blow because it, it won't succeed. Tremendous fear, tremendous anxiety. And in terms of that, um, what I need to do in working with people is to show them, well, what's life like on the other side of the launch? What's life like over there? And suppose that it is something that doesn't work quite so well. Can you change it? Can you modify it? Can you iterate it? Can you come out with another version of it? Can you approach it differently? Because we have more than one shot after we go live, usually. Some instances, maybe not. But uh, for the most part, it's something that we can launch and we can get feedback from. We can learn from the feedback. Oh, um, you didn't like that. Oh, okay, that didn't do what, oh, okay. Or you don't find this useful. Oh, okay, we thought it would be, right? And you change things up. You modify particularly if you're doing something like an app, apps are iterated like crazy. If you're doing something like a service, services are iterated like crazy. If you're doing something like a product, product as well are iterated like crazy. Maybe not as much as apps are, but there's still a lot of iterations that go into things. Mm -hmm. So as soon as you understand that you have to get on the other side, to make all of this begin to then happen, to get the success, to get the revenue, to get the things working. And the longer you stay stuck here, the worse it is for you. Yeah. What happens when you stay stuck? Well, first, the team that you brought together starts to get a little bit anxious about what's happening. They start to worry. And you can say, okay, well, no, we're going to launch in, say, uh, we have four months. We're going to launch in four months. The team will work along up to the four months. And then if you don't launch, then what? And if you don't launch then, you say, well, it'll be another three months or another two months. Well, it begins to erode confidence in the team itself. This can only go on for so long mm. before, before members of the team will begin to then want to leave, go do something else. They, they're, not, they're not with you so much anymore. 
And if you stay stuck there and don't launch, that's exactly what will happen. It will implode. So you need the momentum, number one. You need the commitment from other others, and you need people to be on the same sort of um, same desired pace of that path. Everybody's working to the same sort of rhythm, you could say, with the idea that we'll launch, we'll do this, we'll get to this place, we'll get to this next milestone. So we have this kind of thing kind of moving along. Mm -hmm. So you have a question on your mind there. Yeah, I mean, you know, the idea, I remember the, the launch thing, I'm laughing about it because there was this one year where you're walking around like, you know, like, like a slave driver, like, when are you going to launch? When are you going to launch? When are you going to launch a product, right? Like, you suddenly, you suddenly honed into the major problem that everybody had was that, you know, this is like second or third year of the hub. It's like people are working on this for too long. They're tinkering. You know, the difference between a tinkerer and like innovator is there an innovator works on problems that it, it, that other people have, and he commercialized that. You know, they create some kind of IP. Uh, you, IP plus uh, uh, commercialization equals innovation. You know, if you just have IP, you're just tinkering. Sure. You're just building on something that's sure. making something better, exactly. but not necessarily solving a problem. And the only way you're solving a problem when you're innovating if you get it out there into the public and learn from it. And this, you kind of drilled it into everyone's head for that. You know, for for quite a bit. I mean, like when you're going to launch, is should be like the primary thing is like, how are you going to get this to market? How are you going to learn? How are you going to test? How are you going to, are you going to get feedback? Exactly what you said. And you kind of drilled it, especially into my head. It's like launch means learning. So the quicker you launch, the quicker you learn, the better you iterate, the better you can build a better product. And, you know, we, we kind of got into our heads that, you know, especially uh, as uh, entrepreneurship got like fabulized and became, becomes more of the counterculture, more, um, more, you know, you hear the stories of like, you know, Instagram getting like a billion users like overnight, Facebook, you know, tr being treated like crack. It's like just it's being driven into the dopamine of, of a student body and being absorbed. Like it's like viral, these viral products that we're like, if it's something, it doesn't happen quickly, then we've failed. Therefore, I had to make it perfect. So it launches, it's going to be a perfect launch. And we had, we have this counter, uh, counter concept minds. And one of the things that the, this mantra has done for me is the idea that, okay, if you have an idea, just get it out there. Even if it's pencil and paper, just get it out there and test back from feedback. And there's one, two, three uh, people actually using it. Get get feedback and then build upon it. And one of the things I really appreciate about that is that even when you're launching a tech product, especially now, you know, a ferial tech has gotten, that you know don't necessarily need a tech solution. You know, uh, I've heard this concept. It's like the Wizard of Oz concept. You know, you put up this facade of like, look, look, we have this beautiful shiny machine that's going to do this for you, but behind it is literally like manual labor. You know, and uh, you know, me and my guys, we talk about it. We call it bad AI. You know, human automation, right? Humans automating a task, making it look like a machine is doing it until the machine can you can actually build a machine to do it, to actually learn okay. the thing. So, the the more quickly you can. Um, test your solution in the, in, in the market space. The faster you can learn, the faster you can you can drive that. And and if you think about it, if the, if you bring the shortened learning curve and uh, the ability to launch, right? You know, you learn, uh, launch, and you test and you repeat. Like you, you keep going down this, this cycle. Okay. You know, if you can bring if you, the more you can shorten it, the the faster you actually virally grow. Grow. Growth is dependent not on like oh you launch something and it gets and you shoot to the market, but how quickly you iterate and make it more and more perfect, more and more better. How can you refine it better and better, right? Well, and and specifically with the set of users who are choosing to adopt it. Mm -hmm. So it's about the fit. And how do we have something where there's a product market fit? How do we have it that it actually does 
kind of get in like a glove and, and do what it needs to do. Um, and it's part of that is through working with the people who are actually using, uh, you know, the product or using the service or using the app. You know, what what is their experience? What is it that they want? Because they're the ones that are going to be using it and then adapting. For the most part, that's that's the strategy. And it's a pretty good one. And you can use it in a business-to-business -business, you know, strategy as well when you're developing software for a business-to-business -business purpose. You choose a particular client early on to work with, and you get feedback from that client to help you mm -hmm. understand that what you're building is what people want. Mm -hmm. So it's that whole thing of, you know, don't, don't just build it with the idea that build it and people will come but build it with the idea that you're getting feedback from the users or the potential end users that they are going to then, you know, validate that what you've created is actually the right thing. Mm -hmm. So that's critical. And on a business to business thing, your first um, client that you bring in can be exactly the client that helps you mold something. So what do you have to consider when you're bringing in and working with your first business, your first client, you have to choose well. You have to choose them knowing that they represent the larger community at which you want to then be doing, be doing business. In other words, they, they represent the market. If you choose somebody at one extreme or the other, in terms of they either they're overly demanding, they want tons of features, they're like super, super into this, they want tons and tons of stuff that nobody else would want. Or they're on the other end of the spectrum, hey, you know, this little thing, oh, they'll do. Uh, if you choose on either extreme, you're not choosing what will become then the center core of the representative, you know, entity around which you're designing and building and actually executing. Mm -hmm. So in terms of this, your first client can make a big difference when you're doing it at that kind of a, say, a software development um, kind of service or software SAS kind of approach to, to things. But if you're doing an app, it's the same sort of thing where you want to get feedback from your users. If you're doing a product and there's a product launch, you want to get feedback from the initial users of that product in terms of what do they think about it, testimonials coming back, that sort of thing, all in terms of continuing to validate what it is that you're creating. Mm -hmm. And the more that you stay on this side, pre-launch, the more you stay on this side, the more you deny yourself that very vital and valuable information that will carry you further along. So if we go back to the software that I created, uh, which is now you know years ago, but the thing there was it was exactly that, working with a client to establish what was it that that client needed. Now, had I worked with um, you know a different client who was more demanding, I wouldn't have been able to sell or or, or license that software across the, the market. But the one I chose actually was right sweet, right in the middle in terms of just perfect for this is a representative client to work with. 
And that made a, a, a large difference in terms of things. So when you're getting feedback, it matters. Feedback from whom? Mm. Right? It has to be feedback from the people that matter, that matter to you and to your market and your approach to how you're bringing things to market. And it helps define the product. It helps define how you're approaching the market itself. It helps define the marketing materials. And there are all sorts of tools around which we can help design everything about the company's product, communication, marketing, and sales, all based around how this anchors. Without that central information, again, you haven't launched. You're denying yourself. You're developing it in, in the blind, right? right? Can't fully see, right? How do you anchor yourself? You can't. You can only anchor yourself in what you believe to be the case. And it could be that you're wrong. It could be that you're lying to yourself or you really don't have quite the finger on the pulse that you thought you did. Not all of us are Steve Jobs can see <laughs> and be, you know, a thousand percent right about what we're going to bring in is just going to be the thing, right? Uh, we require market research to actually understand the world around us that we're about to enter. And we need to talk to people. We need to talk to potential users and and owners of, of products and, and stuff and, and understand, are we solving the problem? Is this actually working? Is it working as well as we thought? Mm-hmm. So a lot of entrepreneurs consider themselves to be the ideal customer, right? The ideal client, the ideal customer. Mm-hmm. So they build for themselves, right? They build for themselves thinking, I know that this is going to work because I would be happy with it. It would work for me. <laughs> this is the best thing ever because it will work for me. Now, it could be that that is absolutely bang on right. Could be. But it could also be that there aren't that many of you to validate the market potential for what it is that you're developing. Right? We have to know how many of you are there. And that's the mistake. And how can we connect to all of those other yous in the world? How do we find them? So there's a marketing challenge. So just because you develop it for something that works for you doesn't mean you're doing it right. So that's why testing it in the market, important. Testing it with a subset of the market, important. Understanding what your go-to-market strategy is going to be. Therefore, these are the people we need to understand early on, really important. So, yeah, um, can you find, can you learn from, can you gain insight? So there's focus groups. There's questionnaires or surveys or feedback forms, but you have to listen. You have to li- when you put it out there, you got to listen and listen hard about things, and also be honest mm-hmm. and not afraid to change things if you need to change them. Yeah, I mean, you know, you you definitely need to get a lot of wisdom around this this topic of entrepreneurship and deploying and and, and uh, controlling your mind state around entrepreneurship. Let's. Can we take a moment to like break into like how you develop that? Like, 
one of the one of the key things that stands out about you is you know you're a PhD in archaeology. <laughs> Uh, yeah. When I learned that about you, you know, you're an archaeologist. I'm like, holy, this is Indiana Jones now, you know, working on startups. Because uh, that's that's kind of vibe you kind of gave off. You were like, you were telling me how, you know, you wanted to go into archaeology because it would give you freedom to travel the world. You, know, you could, on the university's dollar, under the, you know, under this whole principle of, of learning about different cultures, learning about things, that can, can organi- organize yourself to go out, travel the world and, in an organized, systematic way. And also, at the same time, make a living and also make a name for yourself. And I thought that was the coolest thing ever. Archaeologist is pretty, it's, it's a pretty some, cool gig. Make some cool discoveries along the way. Absolutely. So, so the, the way that that uh, works, how that, that is relevant is that when you're doing things um, and it could be not just archaeology, but it could be other, other kinds of mm-hmm. approaches people working in science or people working on other projects and things. It's that you're working with a team to execute on a particular result. So team formation, critical. Uh, You're also working with um, data and trying to interpret that and trying to bring some, you know, some understanding to the world around you. And so that's critical too. Um, But I guess I've, I learned that I love working with people. Mm-hmm. I love working with teams. Yes, I still love to travel, and hopefully we'll get back to doing that someday. Yeah. Um, but there's a lot of, of my experience that fits in terms of why I'm successful doing the job I'm doing. I'm not sure exactly that archaeology is key on that, um, certainly getting a PhD is uh, a sort of like, you know, that commitment, that dedication, mm-hmm. that stubbornness, that you know, we're gonna we're gonna do this, we're gonna get to the other side, and then make stuff happen. Uh, that's part of it, and certainly working with teams is definitely part of it. Uh, but I think that when I left academia, so I left academia in '95, mm-hmm. um, I was tired of looking for the tenure stream job in archaeology, which people would understand is not an easy thing to find. Mm-hmm. Um, and I could have taken a tenure stream job in the States, but it would have been two air flights from my family, and it would have been a long distance there. And, and I would, oh, geez, and I would have been living in a place I really didn't want to live in. So I decided that maybe I didn't want to. And that's when I went into industry. And when you change, when you leave something that you've worked on so hard, um, it's very stressful. And you're then looking for, well, what do I know? What do I really have as skills? What can I really work on that will be successful? So one of the things about archaeology, in a strange way, that has made me tremendously successful in my current job is the fact that I didn't succeed. Mm. Right? It's not exactly that I failed. I had a wild time doing it. I've got some great publications out there. I'd had some really wonderful years doing it. But did I get the tenure stream job? No. Did the brass ring come my way? No. Did I have to change what it was that I was doing? Yes. And this is something which many people in university face when it comes to, okay, I've worked on my 
my career for so long. I worked in getting this degree. Uh, maybe I got a BA. Maybe I have a master's. Maybe I have a PhD. Right? right? Anyway, you worked on this for so long, and now you're doing something different. And it's a really, you sit back and you go, what do I know how to do? What are the valuable skills that I have? Uh, where can I go with any of this? And along the way, I found that I was pretty good with computers. And I was pretty good with programming. And then we were getting into the internet and doing things with educational CD-ROMs. I, when I formed my first business, it was actually in terms of that space. It was one on um, designing educational CD-ROMs. It was on what should the experience of learning through a digital medium be all about. And at the time we were using the, that golden disc uh, you know, to kind of develop that kind of stuff through either video learning on the CD or interactive programming of a kind. And then after I started to understand that the real value that I had was about the guidance aspect, the designing aspect, the getting into doing com consumer insight research. And that's where I pivoted my company within a very short number of years. I was then doing consumer insight for marketing firms. And very um, fortunate in terms of the contracts that I got and very rewarding in terms of the research that I got to be doing. So, okay, if we wanted to make a, a leap from archaeology to, to that, archaeology is about insight from data. It's about making leaps. It's about understanding why is it why is something a certain way? It's about looking at things around and then saying, aha, this is why that was set up this way. Well, it turns out that that skill of working with others, talking to people to understand what drives them, what motivates them, what, what is it that kind of gets them going? That's the part that made my business very successful. So I did national campaigns for um, places like Quarry Integrated Communication. And Quarry is a marketing firm is based out of St. Jacob, out near Waterloo. And their clients, just wonderful, wonderful clients, and clientele exceptional projects to work on. So things to do with FedEx and with Bell and with uh, Rogers and, and with John Deere and all, all, all these things. So you're dealing with some just wonderful projects to dive into. And then you're talking to people about problems, about products and services, and what works for them. And you're trying to get into people's heads and trying to figure out, well, how can we innovate something that will actually work to address this problem? And those were my recommendations that I was making to those companies. Okay, now let's take all of that and forward it into my role here at the hub. The ability to get into somebody's head, mm. to know what is motivating and driving. The ability to look at what they're working with and extract from that 
what is the lay of the land? What is it that's working for them? What's the feedback? The ability to help them shape the solution that works for fitting the problem. So you see the very business that I created way back when is directly on point for the kinds of things that everybody is doing when they come to the hub. So I'm in a way a mentor on that, on that, on that way with things. So that's kind of how I guess the pieces fit, um, I guess, in terms of stuff. Uh, I'm also a musician. I don't know how that fits, but you know, again, I like people. I like to, to interact with others. And so I guess this kind of works with things that way too. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, multifaceted. I mean, that's that's what it comes down to. Um, you know, when you talk about life, like one of the things I, I appreciate is that I always felt like you know the idea of a career just boggled my mind. That you have, you know focusing life on you know doing one thing and jumping or like staying within a company for a long time and just grinding it out and growing at a very linear pace in a safe way always threw me off. But one of the things I liked about you is this idea of like second, third careers. Like, you know, you switch gears throughout your life and you've experienced them before to like, you know, in that stream world in other ways in completely fantastically different ways. But like that gives you a rich and full life, gives you perspective, right? Exactly. And, and, and and knowledge to like uh, kind of like feedback on, on, on a multifaceted way. I like how you compare archaeology as a way of getting to the human mind. You know, um, it's one of the main reasons that drew me to like a, a, my undergraduate in neuroscience psychology. Uh, but underneath that, you know, I did when I graduated, I had enough enough to, uh, credits for um, uh, two two majors and three minors because I was so fascinated about the topics. You know, neuroscience, psychology, biology, uh, political science, sociology. Right, those are the the degrees that that I could have I could have chosen between. And the day I I, I I had to choose and I got and I chose neuroscience and psychology because it sounded the coolest, right? Like a pairing. Yeah. Yeah. But the my 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 idea of wanting to understand people led me into a path of uh, into a career of sales. Sales at different different companies and selling different products. But the uh, like the underlying skill set came in understanding people and how to deploy new, uh, solutions exactly. towards them, right? And that came from this love of like, you know, people being like the greatest problem. You know, they're like a complex problem. And if you can see the patterns that emerge within them, you can kind of see uh, the po- the problems that exist within that complex problem, the complex system. But archaeology, I think, is really unique because it talks about the historical context. But more than this, the archaeology, like everyone thinks about the dusty old professor. When I compared you to like, to like, uh, um, well, wow, why am I blanking on this now? <laughs> Uh, Indiana, Indiana Jones, right? Was some of the okay. stories he told me about archaeology. You know, you in a dig site somewhere, right? And like, uh, you know, and like in a land of a dictator, <laughs> and there's like military jets be flying over, and you're like, oh damn, like maybe we should have, uh, we should, we should get out of here, right? And uh, you know, stories like that. Um, okay. you, know, you, I remember one time you tell me, you know, you brought these bottle rockets. You can shoot rockets up with a camera. You built this whole system so you can shoot a ca- shoot a, a camera up with a with a rocket, yeah. you know, really high up, and it deploys the parachute and it comes down and it t- and it takes pictures. And you're telling me this when I was trying to look into drone technology and we're talking about the. Uh, you're like, yo, I, I had a drone back in the day. Just I had a parachute and <laughs> fell at a certain time, a certain speed. But like, yeah. you know, you took this into South America during a time of like real real uproar of, uh, of unrest and you you deployed this 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 uh this solution only to have military jets around like you know fly over you within like yep. <laughs> within a period of space and you're like wait now i'm double thinking this 
you know, like I, I feel like even though like, like the archaeology was your tool set, but you were you're, yourself, you're being an entrepreneur. You're developing solutions and to solve to solve problems within the space of archaeology, you know, within the context of archaeology. And that's that's the kind of key takeaway take I've had. And that's what I realized about specialized knowledge. You know, when you have this kind of degrees or certificates or like professional training in one thing, what you have is like specialized knowledge, skill sets you can deploy. But really entrepreneurship is, is, is a multifaceted way of bringing different things together to solve complex problems and deploy them into, into, into the space. And you can be in different places. You know, there's entrepreneurship, which we need to hear about and creating startups. There's also like entrepreneurship when you're inside of a larger institution, okay. right? Uh, the hub, arguably, is uh, is entrepreneurship because within the larger context of like a traditional university, UFT being one of the biggest institutions of learning in the world, you're doing this novel thing, which is, hey, let's not just teach people this stuff and charge them a whole bunch of money to like to, you know get access to our knowledge. Let's also take them to sit around and like let them brainstorm and develop and work on their on ideas they might have. I, and I think you know. University of Toronto, more than more than most schools, with 13 incubators and the Benting and Bass Center now taking, you know, having a much more direct role in, in development, is starting to see that entrepreneurship and and fostering this idea, cultivating this idea of problem solving, especially of, of such a young, ambitious crowd um, uh, um, uh, of people as of university students, right, is is itself rewarding, right? We're seeing these landscapes of the universities change now, you know. Universities used to be these wall gardens of knowledge where like, yeah, we have all these professors creating all this research, but there's a paywall here. You pay us to come inside and get trained, and then you go out in the world with a certificate saying, hey, you came to this big okay, brand yeah. institution. But now YouTube exists. You know, Virginia Law School has their entire law program on YouTube. Harvard has entire beginner, beginner studies like on YouTube. So like it's easier now than ever to acquire knowledge, but now it's about, hey, what do I do with it? What are the what are the creative outputs that I can have? How can I create higher order thinking out of it? And that's what you know, places like the hub really provides. Is cool. You can get knowledge, but what can you do with that knowledge? Right. Well, you you undoubtedly remember uh, or or know a company by the name of Genesis. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So when we think of Genesis, which is solving the um, world of waste management, being revolutionary in terms of that. And they've come up with a way of doing this that uh, also creates a product in terms of biodegradable plastic that they can sell. And when Genesis formed and took hold and, and then launched from the hub and then went down to the hatchery and then went down to Creative Destruction Lab and then it's gone on from there, it's a tremendous example of how just what you were talking about, how the university space has changed. It's one where we have a student, in this case, a student who went through the master's in environmental science. And they are then applying that knowledge and they, they get the inspiration for that within the lab in the context of their education. But then they have a way to take that and without leaving the university to then begin to work on, okay, how can we get this together? How did Genesis go from its initial you know, concept and validation within a 
kind of a rice cooker in a lab. Mm. How did it go from that to creating a company and creating something which is just tremendously promising in terms of how it can revolutionize you know, technology for waste management? Well, obviously its founder is you know, very, very you know, smart in terms of all of the aspects that are involved in doing this. But in terms of that, there's also been some guidance along the way mm-hmm. and some help along the way. And the University of Toronto overall has been that help. So I'm not claiming it's just me, but uh, her professors, um, the hub, the other incubators, the competitions that she's been part of, the way that this has helped shape things. And so many people have had a hand and helping that uh, take form. Now, that's not to take away from the brilliance of the individual entrepreneurs themselves, because they are just incredible people for doing what they're doing. Uh, Very smart, very capable. But, you know, when it comes down to it, this is what you're talking about. The difference, the difference today when you're creating something and you're taking it somewhere. So, Presently in the hub, there are a couple of other companies. One has the ability to do something phenomenal in medicine. And presently with COVID and the pandemic and all that, we recognize that the development of drugs and the time it takes to bring them to market is at times a matter of life and death. And this individual has figured out a way to shorten the development cycle for drugs that are um, to address respiratory illness. And he has a patented process for providing a uh, very needed critical testing material early on in the phase of drug development that will shorten the the length of time it takes to develop a drug by about 35%. It will also take the amount of money that's needed to bring a drug to market by a substantial amount of money as well, talking about savings of millions. So that individual years ago would have been, okay, you get your degree, off you go, good luck to you. In this particular instance, today. It's not that at all. It's a matter of that individual coming to the hub and saying, I need some help. need some help forming a company around this, understanding how I approach the market with this, understanding you know, how I build this out, and what sorts of opportunities lay ahead for me. So we're doing that currently in terms of working with that. The promise or the potential promise for this discovery is absolutely phenomenal, truly. It can go, um, if things go well, it can go into the hundreds of millions of dollars in a fairly short period of time. There's only so much I can talk about it, of course. Mm. That's why I'm kind of skating around the edges of what I can say. But then there's another. This individual um, has something where he's trying to be revolutionary in terms of grocery uh, warehousing and grocery delivery. 
and he's designed a robot. Mm. And this robot is in trials at the moment in food warehouses. And Sorry, what's the is, name of the company? Uh, you're, okay. not, you're not allowed this, to talk about it? This, or I, I can talk about this one because it's, it's a current cohort, on right? Hub. It's yeah. on, the cub, on the Hub's website. Mm -hmm. This is uh, Gradient Robotics. Mm. And the founder is Samer Kaya. Yeah. Um, and in terms of that, just phenomenal individual in terms of having put things together from the, the understanding of, well, how do we design a robot? How do we get a robot to do this? What do we need it to do? And when people think about robots, I mean, they think about like, ooh, you know, like danger, danger, real Will Robinson, danger, danger. Or they think about, you know, things going, or, you know, all sorts of things about robots. Right? But what this is, it's really a, a large rideable cart is the way you could say it. And it's programmed such that it can navigate through space. And it knows where everything is in the warehouse. So you, you type in the list of stuff that you have to go get, and you literally ride this robot through the space, and it will it'll help you collect all this stuff. The robot doesn't get tired. The robot is phenomenal in terms of what it does. And he has this in trials and wants to bring this to Canada. For and there's things that are happening there on that front. And by bringing that into the hub, it's to look at, well, again, how do we do this? What are the steps? What are the steps in terms of where do you want to go relative to uh, getting this together and, and getting your sales potential outlined and your revenue lined up and the investment that you need in terms of the pre-seed and then seed round to come into your company. So we're working with them on all of that sort of stuff. Um, and so, it's, yeah, it's a great space to, to be working on stuff with. So yeah, it's people who come, they, they bring an idea, they bring mm -hmm. um, capability, they bring their own, um, as I say, killer advantage for making things work. For Samer, the critical, critical advantage is his knowledge on robotics and his ties to um, an engineering firm um, that uh, can help make all of this happen. And those ties are just phenomenal. It's much like Richard. Richard, in terms of coming, was his knowledge about scooters, his ability to, you know, bring that into the market. Well, it's the same mm -hmm. thing here. With Genesis, it was the knowledge on science. The critic, the killer advantage being knowing the scientific discovery that allowed for the actual, you know, making of the, you know, the process by which waste is kind of disintegrated, devoured, whatever you'd want to say, but also by which a different product is made as a byproduct along the way. So each, it's a matter of what is it that is the real crystal clear advantage that they propose in terms of, and then how do they, how do they build a company around that? What's the opportunity to build a company around that? So way back in the day with Genesis, it was a decision over, well, are you going to design a small machine that you can put into each kind of mini location? Or are you, are you going to design a large facility in which you can do these sorts of things? So I mean, major, major decisions being made in terms of what works. Yeah. No, um, this is one of the main things that made me fall in love with what I do, like why I do this, you know, tech startup-based podcast is 
I grew to love talking to entrepreneurs, founders, because they're such a unique tribe of people. And most of this all came from exposure to the hub. You know, prior to the hub, you know, I never ran into people who thought like me, like, how do I launch, how do I solve problems? How do I launch companies? How do I do uh, solve complex problems? I always felt like an outsider looking in because everyone else was on like a straight or narrow path, you know, get the grades or, you know, go, go to the job, get the money, get the car, get the girl, like go a linear path in life. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to do more. And I always felt like, you know, there's something wrong with me. I always like, always brought up with that kind of, came up with that kind of mindset, but came to the hub and you see this whole tribe, a whole community of people who always think like this, who are not, who are not looking at the linear growth, but how can I solve complex problems? How can I get an exponential, right? How can I get to another level where I can, I, I can do so much more and get better. And this is a unique tribe of people and talking to founders and like what drives them, you know, what, uh, what, what are the ideas they're working on? What are the unique upbringing that they had that, that's, that's, that's the point of uh, the point they are right now. That really, that really like really brought the juices in me, the creative juices. Right. And what I naturally found was like, sorry, go ahead. It's true, but true of the entire community. Yeah. Everybody who's in there has something that they feel really passionate about doing and setting that ablaze is actually just so much fun. I tell Mm -hmm. you. So yeah, we have, there are presently women in the hub who have an idea on on a certain cosmetic for, for women, and they're just really, really passionate about how this can solve and prevent certain kinds of skin cancer. And they have the background and training in terms of pharmacology to be able to know mm-hmm. how this is all going to work. We have another company in cosmetics. Uh, this is Siobhan, who you, who you know, mm-hmm. who is, comes out with a chemistry degree. And he's passionate about doing things with natural products, uh, just simple recipes, but simple recipes that work really, really well. And he has this company, Natural Organic Matters, and he's selling and getting that product out into the market. And he's now understanding, and we've been working with him, to, well, you can't just have one product. We, we, we need you to think of well, what's the suite of products? You know, what are the other products that go along with? And he has all of that kind of ramped out well, mm. too. So for him in particular, and for everyone, it's a matter of, well, you know what you're really, really good at. You know what you're exceptionally passionate about. You know what your true skill is. Now, how do you build a team that will take you further? How do you build a team that will form the company, right? So someone who is like Siobhan, well, he's the chemist. He's got that part down cold, right? He's really, really, really talented at that. And then, okay, well, who do you need to pack around him to then make the whole team such that they can, they can actually take off, they can actually grow, they can actually go somewhere? So that's part of the whole advising that goes into things. And then trying to find collaborators collaborators to work with in terms of, you know, these different companies. So, you know, we have some of that going on. We have some, uh, some women in the hub that are very passionate about mental health and about designing uh, novel and unique solutions that can actually help in terms of the mental health front, uh, either through a, a software service that's being developed to help people find the resources they need in a very novel way and using artificial intelligence as part of the whole system by which people find 
what they need to find. Or we have people who are doing things that are more in terms of grocery delivery or doing things in terms of, again, robotics. It's just a really fun, very varied space. And everybody who's in there has this unique talent um, where they have this passion around this problem and they're uniquely gifted to actually bring about a solution. So yeah, it's a matter of having them understand who they are, not to underestimate who they are, which is so easy to do. It is so easy to, to not recognize the power that you bring in terms of the insight that you have on the problem that you want to fix. There's a reason that people own the problem that they own. There is. It might be because they are the person who's ideally suited to solve it. Mm -hmm. And when you recognize that, yeah, that's, that's the blessing. That's truly the blessing. So we work with people more than many incubators work with people. We get into people's heads, maybe more than some do. I don't know what it is quite about um, what it is we're doing that is entirely responsible for the success we're having. But success has struck here, not once, not twice, not a half a dozen times, many, many more times than all of that. So presently, um, yeah, we're since the start of the pandemic, I think the combined revenue of all the startups in the hub is somewhere north of $5 million Amazing. since the start of the pandemic. Yeah. Uh, so a lot of people, you know, they wondered about what would happen with the hub when the pandemic started. I mean, it's a space, it's a physical space. Great. You got, you're going to have to close your space. I mean, what, what, why, why don't we just all close it all down until this thing's over? And I was like, um, no, <laughs> I don't think so. I'm getting more interest from the community about wanting to do things now than ever before. And everybody's talking about need to pivot, a need to find a new revenue stream. I need to um, become successful in a different way. I need to open and knock on different doors. It was actually a real, well, you could say creative time. If out of this pandemic, the economy is to become restored and quickly, my belief is that it's with people who are entrepreneurs who are coming out of the incubators and the accelerators that are gonna help drive that. These are people that pivot, they look for opportunity, they look for solving problems, they're very agile, they're very creative, they're extremely industrious and tremendously resourceful. So these are the companies that are going to begin to take root. If you, during a pandemic, can establish a revenue, wow, imagine when the pandemic's over. If you, 
during a pandemic can get all the pieces together for what is going to help as soon as this pandemic ends and people are back to doing something physically together again. Wow, that's something that we need to pay attention to. It's something that's deserving of support and investment and for people to pay very close attention. Mm -hmm. um, and that's part of what's happening. Yeah. So yes, we've, we've had uh, companies, oh, the pandemic hit and we're going to shelf what it is that we're, we were doing. Particularly hard hit were companies that were in the hospitality industry anything to do. And I think you were also affected by this your, yourself, as I recall. Mm -hmm. Anything to do with restaurants and hotels and the rest during this pandemic, just absolutely, absolutely, you know, a critical time where people were uh, looking at, well, I'm, I'm not sure how I go forward here. But uh, in many instances, People have gone forward. They've not gone forward of you know, hammering their head into the wall over something that's not working. What they've done is they've looked at, well, how can we quickly pivot to make things work and look at new opportunities? Some of these things are going to uh, stay as opportunity in terms of, for example, uh, we have a company that's um, Cheaper Eats. Mm. Yeah, I think you know Cheaper Eats, right? So Cheaper Eats was doing the thing where skip the line to get your, your meal. And they were doing things for students where all the restaurants and things around the university were all uh, lined up for, well, you could make your order from the app and you could make that order at the end of your class. And you could, you know, oh, I got, you know, class is almost order. Okay, order now. Fine, fine, fine. I got just enough time to get over there, pick it up, and then get to my next class over there, right? Okay, fine, wonderful, wonderful idea. And Ralph Mamari, the founder, was having that really work and was getting all sorts of traction and getting onboarding restaurant after restaurant after restaurant with that and getting some traction with students in terms of using that. But when the pandemic hit, the restaurants closed and the university closed. And all of a sudden the app is like, Nobody's making any orders because there's no students in class and there are no restaurants that are open to go and get the food. So Ralph had a real need to pivot on his hand. And what he did is he looked at the space of food delivery because he was you know, kind of in that space. And he started making the, the, the connection with people who were experimenting with uh, food delivery techniques and particularly with robots for doing food delivery techniques. And that's where Ralph presently is at. He's looking at how can we do food delivery with automat automatic or automated, I should say, vehicles, like little robots, and do it um, quickly and safely and uh, just like all that kind of stuff. It's really just a hoot to look at how that is opening up. That's not going to go away when the pandemic goes away. Any more than self-driving cars, you know, will, you know, disappear um, for whatever reason. They're going to be here too. And the way that people 
work, the way that people, um, you know, engage with businesses and with product delivery and product ordering and the rest. So many of us have been buying stuff on Amazon or getting stuff delivered to the house. Some of this stuff is just going to stick and not going to change. Now, I don't want people who are listening to think that I'm saying that things aren't going to, to change or go back in some other kind of profound way, because absolutely they are. I look forward to when the pandemic's over and people can hug each other and go to parties together and just associate and you know uh, go on walks together. And I swear that people are going to travel and have all sorts of excitement for a good long time uh, as soon as this thing's like mm -hmm. that. I don't think there's going to be an empty seat on an airplane for a good long time as people can like finally travel and get to places that they want to go. They're going to visit all sorts of relatives and friends are going to do all sorts of incredible things or so i tell myself so in the context of when you're trying to bring business into a post-pandemic world it pays to understand that there's something that will stay as well as something that will change and really embrace that so yeah people are going to still how, you know, to have things that are online, the convenience of having things that have been developed online, the convenience of having things that are brought to your home. Uh, we're going to have uh, an interesting uh, kind of forward motion in terms of where things go. Tremendous opportunity on that. And no, Uber Eats is not the only company in town that's going to make something happen in terms of that space. So, yeah, some really... Um, from what I see, uh, earth-shattering um, redesign of how business works in, well, in the city of Toronto in particular, uh, but also in cities across Canada and North America. Mm -hmm. It's going to be a very interesting time. And entrepreneurs are ideally positioned to take and make that the, the new reality. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, it, it's it's crazy. We've seen this uh, evolution over the past seven, eight years, where Toronto's become at the four, like you know, top four place in the world for innovation to occur, and it's everywhere. Like you know, from all aspects of uh, industry to the different uh, different sectors, even traditional areas like banking are looking for innovat innovators to come in and change things up, right? And it, it especially the pandemic has been a catalyst, really, to like to make everyone yeah. you know forward thinking to change. And the government of Canada has recognized this. The government of Canada, has, there's so many reports that have came out. You know, me and Henry have started go, uh, geeking out over these white papers released by different think tanks, different organizations, and uh, it's different government governmental bodies talking about how they, the expected result is innovation, aka new company development. It's what's going to, uh, post-pandemic, is going to uh, rebound the economy, right? All economic growth expected to come from new company development, not the existing uh, businesses. Um, you know, I think the globally, the, the globe's economy shrunk by 4.9%. I think that's a, out of Bloomberg this week uh, during during the past year. And, you know, coming back from that, you know, a lot of people, you know, because a shrinking economy makes everyone and suffer. And we've heard these stories of suffering. But there's this one quote that kind of really resonates uh, that's been really coming out is an idea that history doesn't repeat itself, it rhymes. And that if you want to look at the state of humanity, yeah. Look, look back at how it was a hundred years ago, you know, 
because the idea is that hard times create hard people who then create good times that creates weak people. And we are in that state where, you know, hard times creating hard people, right? And if we look back to like, um, you know, 100 years ago, again, the world was in a, in a pandemic with the Spanish flu. There was a Great Depression happening. And, uh, you know, we we were we associated the era with like, you know, the huge population of people who went homeless and they suffered and, and the disparity and, and, and inequality. But one of the things that we don't recognize is that, you know, that was one third of people. Another one, uh, one another third, you know, survived. They existed. They didn't have experience much growth or anything, but no, they survived through it. But one third did phenomenally well. In fact, in the United States, more millionaires were created during the Great Depression than all other periods of, of, of their history. And the idea is right now is like this, I, the, the corona, like the, the financial state outside the pandemic is being uh, coined by Scott Galloway as the great dispersion, where it, we're not seeing the destruction, destruction of wealth, but the transference, the rapid transference. You know, like money being taken out of the, the number one asset class in the world, which is commercial real estate, transferring rapidly into the second uh, largest real uh, asset, uh, what's it, asset bubble, asset class, which is residential real estate. And just that transference, when things are moving around, it gives a lot of opportunity for growth, a lot of opportunity for infiltration, a lot of opportunity for new things to come up. So the idea of new companies being able to uh, capture all this is definitely possible. So yes, I think we're going to see a lot of disparity coming coming forward from a lot of changes, job job loss, uh, companies going out of business. But also, you know, this is a time for people who are creating to build things, to, for, for the problem solver to step in with the hammers right. and you know and the hammers and the tools. And start building, and what 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 really uh, drives that? It centers like the hub, you know, these these places that draws people in together, give them the resources, and moves that forward, right? Well, let me what give you an example on some yeah. of the stuff that you're talking about. Um, so right now we have a situation. Let's take restaurants for for just a case of point. And restaurants have, have during the pandemic, if you're doing takeout you have a, a, a lifeline. If you haven't been doing takeout, chances are you've suffered greatly and perhaps gone out of business. For those that are doing takeout, to leverage takeout, they've been doing things with Skip the Dishes and with Uber Eats and with others, you know, other delivery companies uh, to deliver uh, the food to you know, the homes, uh, as well as you can go and pick stuff up yourself in terms of things. Uh, but in terms of the options, the amount of money that the restaurant loses when they are working with uh, some of these delivery companies, the amount it costs them, it's pretty steep. And they don't have much choice. Mm -hmm. They either go with some of these established delivery companies such that they can get on their platform and get to be known and visible and, and get their takeout, you know, you know, out there more, or they try to go go it alone themselves, get flyers out, get the word out, you know, try to get people who had come to the restaurant to know about the situation that they're doing, take out, hope for the best. In this particular mix, and my opinion is that um, some of the delivery companies have been overly, um, well, They've taken a bit of advantage over the situation. They're actually making a fair amount of money uh, at the restaurant's expense. That's my own opinion um, about you know making the deliveries. 
and it's money that the restaurant can't really afford to lose. So how do we solve the problem where food delivery is too expensive for the restaurant to use the delivery services that are currently out there? Well, one way, the old school kind of thought on this would be, well, hey, we'll all shake out in the end. Uh, more local delivery companies will come into play and they will uh, compete for a smaller share of the pie and it'll all sort out and maybe that would happen. But another way of doing this is to look at, well, can we do automated you know, vehicle delivery in some way, completely shake it up? I mean, completely shake it up such that it's not a driver of a vehicle in any way, shape, or form mm -hmm. that is actually doing the delivery. And then how does that become available for restaurants to then have that as the way by which they do the food delivery? And what does that look like? What does the world of automated vehicles look like? And that's coming. It is part of the post-pandemic world. It's not because the pandemic created it, but it's in timing-wise. Um, it's on the other side of it. And when we have automated vehicles, how is that going to change the whole aspect of food delivery? So that's one area in which entrepreneurs are very active, will continue to be very active, and will dramatically change in a very short period of time, that meaning um, short period of, of years forward where that will be something that we're, we're seeing. Is there gonna be a cost to that in terms of jobs? Yes, but on the other side is the, will there be jobs created? And that's what we're looking at you know, all the time in terms of when new things come into being. Where does the, how does it shift in terms of the workforce? You know, what jobs need to be created? So if you have people making automated vehicles, servicing automated vehicles, uh, in some way planning and, and um, the, the path by which they, they go and sort of being your monitoring of what's happening in the landscape, all of that will create jobs. Whereas the driver, no. So this will change mm -hmm. as part of, that, part of that world too. Yeah. Like what it like reminds me of is like the story of like the the the, the railroad railroad sorry the railroad worker, right? Who's like hammering away building the railroad tracks? Looks over and see see the steam engine uh, pile driver that's like doing it right next to him. And you know for every uh, ten he puts down, that thing only does one. And he looks at it, smiles, and then but then like what he doesn't realize like every month it's getting faster and faster. It's getting tweaked and gets better and better. And one, two years rolls by, and now for every one he's doing, it's doing one. And then suddenly, it's doing two for every one he's doing. And then three, then four, and five. Suddenly, he's replaced. He's been outpaced, right? And uh, and th th that was like a story of the second um, the second industrial revolution where, you know, steam power and engines came to be. We, we became, uh, energy became portable. Electricity, to, electrification of the world came to be, and you know, and we saw this subtle shift in like the labor pools where human labor had to shift from physical labor now to mental labor. 
And the third revolution, a third human, a third uh, industrial revolution furthered this, right? We put everyone into offices because now we had mass production. We had all these like, you know, uh, supply chains and we need high level people to think about it and strategically plan this and work together in a, in a, in a, in a beehive complexity. We had the boom in, 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 our, in urban, urban centers. We need to pop, put people together in one, in one area, place to make these things, systems work. And now suddenly with the internet and with the AI revolution, the fourth industrial revolution now, so it was reversing this trend, right? Where again, we're seeing the, just like the railroad, railroad worker, seeing the steam engine come, the, the AI driver, the thinking machine that's outthinking us, right? Where we have trained generations of people to, to be to be to be, uh, to be captured on um, on a status of IQ, you know, the ability to remember things and and, and regurgitate it back. You know, we've trained our, trained our, our citizens like this. And jobs are all based off of this, but suddenly that skill set is become, becoming um, less, less and less valuable, right? Machines can out, outthink us, outremember us, can you know perform really uh, remedial tasks at a very excellent degree with like an you know um, you know at the at the at the cost of electricity, right? So now the next job is okay, cool, this is happening. The next order level of work is how do we again strategize and put this thing into novel ways, right? So the idea being that entrepreneurs become like it's you know it's like the office worker of the 50s and 60s compared to the, uh, the, the factory worker of like the 19th century right it's like it's a, it's a new evolution of work where it should be a very niche category a very small segment of, of, of the of the world who is allowed to do this now it's going to become more and more mainstream where that is a, the labor pools is, is being pushed towards right and thinking about that right like what I'm, what I'm really curious about is your thoughts on the evolution of the university you know our higher centers of learning uh, I talk oh, a lot about this with. Okay. Uh, well, I can I, I can pick up directly on on that. Yeah. Um, first, relative to finishing the thought on the workspace, we've all been working from home mm. during this pandemic. Or, well, not not all, but I mean, some mm. people you know, still have to go clean the go stations and stuff, right? Yeah. Uh, but a lot of us have been working from home, uh, and in terms of that, how will that change? the mentality of work when we get to the other side of this pandemic. So we'll find that it's not that we'll all just continue to work from home. No, that's not the case. But how does the whole experience of what we've done in terms of how comfortable are we with technology in terms of doing the digital meetings, in terms of making the connections during this period of pandemic, how have we stretched and reached to others? How have we brought that world into being? We have become a bit virtual in the course of the past year, and we've become fairly comfortable in the virtual space that we are occupying. We become a bit more um, comfortable talking to our screen, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's odd at first for people to sit in front of a computer talk to the screen and then all of a sudden it becomes like the new reality of, of this is our social experience. This is our, our way of, of being uh, a social being with this piece of technology that's sitting in front of us. We've become a lot more comfortable with that. It's never that we were particularly uncomfortable with technology, but we were uncomfortable with virtuality. We used it in a different way, or we used it to a lesser extent. Not everyone, of course, but by you know the 
society at, at large has come somewhat unwilling into this space. Everything we're doing now is screen time in terms of we're doing our, well, um, this, <laughs> in terms of uh, interacting with others in, in work or doing an interview or that sort of thing. So we're doing our work through screen. We're watching movies through screen. We are interacting with our email through screen. We are doing all sorts of social media through screen. So we have become so into the virtual, much more so than we had been previously. We speak more comfortably on camera. We reach out in terms of meeting where we're all around doing the Hollywood Squares version of the office things or, <laughs> or uh, that sort of thing. Um, the Partridge family, was that the one that had the, the, the different squares in terms of uh, maybe not trying to remember the TV show. That uh, had the, the Brady Bunch? Brady Bunch. There yeah. we go. The Brady Bunch. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Yeah, Brady Bunch and Hollywood Squares. And that's that's a lot of our meeting space these days. Yeah. We're looking at each other doing doing this sort of stuff. But we have become comfortable in the course of doing that. So when we get to the other side, even if we return back to the office space, we're not going to forget what it's been to actually engage in a virtual space of calling people up and interacting more this way and doing deals more comfortably this way. Uh, so there's going to be a, a, a transition in terms of that. Now you mentioned about universities and what does some of this mean for universities? Some of the stuff I've read on that, some of the stuff that I've discussed with people is that there's become a, a, a question when you're there and you're during a pandemic and you're paying uh, exorbitant fees. Uh, I'm not talking about University of Toronto, um, mm -hmm. but when, you know, say that we're talking about Stanford or Harvard or, um, or some other university or school, and you're doing your classes from home, you're, you're paying $50,000. It's like, wow, it's caused some people to really question. What is the experience? What should the experience be? And how can we look at you know, what university education should be and how it's going to transform? And I, I think that what we'll see is that some of the large universities with established brands of excellence, and here I am talking about University of Toronto, um, also talking about Harvard, talking about MIT, talking about Berkeley, people will be drawn to going and taking and getting their experience, their education from these institutions online a little bit more so than maybe has been the case. Mm -hmm. Some universities will find it harder to justify um, and some have taken a real hit in terms of this uh, enrollment, right? There's been a real question for each family and each prospective student about whether to enroll or wait and where to enroll during the pandemic. 
it certainly has been a bit of a hit on some of the uh, smaller universities and colleges that have struggled greatly. And their, their ability to withstand this, they too are affected. Mm. It means that they've had to cut back. It means that they have had to look at the bottom line on what they're able to offer. It means that they've had to curtail hiring staff and hiring faculty. And when you do that, it brings into question um, how well you're meeting the challenges that you're setting out for yourself. So some universities are investing quite heavily in terms of online and leveraging the online experience as being something that they can build on. So there's a chance um, that that might not entirely return to what it had been. There's a chance that some of the universities will become more mega universities in terms of their brand, in terms of what they offer, education online and the rest, to the degree that people are, are willing to do their education that way. The caveat to this, or the, the flip side, maybe, maybe a better way to say it, is, is shown by uh, the daughter of a friend of mine. It's the pandemic. She was accepted at Harvard. She was not going to do it from home. She's down in Cambridge, Massachusetts. She's in a place and, and an apartment and doing her courses, for the most part, online. Mm. But she's there mm. because she wants that experience of, of being there. So maybe there's some um, something that's a bit more resilient than we know about the desire for the physical experience of the, the physicality of presence of being at a university or a college mm -hmm. that maybe we're, we're not seeing just yet, but might prove itself in the test of time. But there will be some large courses that have come out that definitely will be. Mm -hmm. uh, there's some, I tell you, but if we bring it to what I do know a lot more about, um, or think I do, if we talk about the hub. So the first day when the university closed, I was already online. I had already transferred everything online. Yes. It was like, like, I'm not holding back. This is coming. Boom. You can't resist. Why fight what you can't change? Yeah. So I was straight in there. And I was setting myself up on Zoom in particular, getting all sorts of things worked out and getting, you know, events planned and getting people to know about stuff and totally transferred into being, you know, a more virtual space. When we returned back to having the space open physically, I am not going to abandon what's been created in terms of the online. There have been benefits, tremendous benefits. The distance between Scarborough and downtown Toronto has been erased. It, it no longer takes an hour to drive and an hour back to drive back. Mm -hmm. So we now have participation from people downtown, students downtown, looking at the hub saying, oh, geez, I think this is a good place. I think I want to come to the hub to do what I'm doing. And there's stuff that we're offering online. We're not about to drop that, even though we can return back to physical space. 
So I'm not saying that we will keep everything online, but chances are we're going to try to uh, you know, maintain both things together, the physical and the virtual together. My advice to companies that are looking to transforming the, uh, the past is to look at how they can blend exactly that same way. For example, with restaurants, the restaurants that establish themselves that do not have a really healthy, viable takeout, you know, you know, service and menu and the whole thing going, would be doing themselves a severe disservice. Restaurants that think that it's all about the experience of the dining might want to consider, well, we need to keep something else alive alongside because when we are closed down in a pandemic, closed down, the experience of the dining is not there. We're not paying $100 a plate for the experience of the dining. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to pay you know, $100 a plate for the takeout. So the restaurants need to revolutionize a bit, make sure they stay healthy, by keeping a more sort of adept uh, a foot in both spaces kind of kind of way. That's just one example. Mm -hmm. But you know what I'm saying is what the hub is doing in terms of a blend, what the universities will be doing as a blend, what restaurants should be doing as a blend. And if we're looking at as companies move forward, there's opportunity in making sure that we don't just drop everything that we've done now to go back to everything that we were doing because look where that got us but look at how we can bring these things together how we can mold them together and create a, a much more um, robust and less fragile economy and experience for for everybody and so this whole thing about virtual work same thing the virtual office space same thing. If people, you know, just kill that and go back to, okay, we're just going to be working in our physical space now like we were before, mm -hmm. they'd be making a, a real mistake. Because the companies that are going to be embracing and, and building the two together will be creating new opportunity in ways that will outperform the old way. And they'll also be resilient to, to any further change. Uh, should it happen in terms of, uh, God forbid, we have another kind of deal that we have to face with like this pandemic. But you know, there, there are advantages to blending things together. There are advantages to having some aspects of the business remain virtual in terms of how it does its business, how it interacts, how it you know gets things together for how does it uh, work with other companies or how does it merge with others or partner with others or get things working alongside. Yeah. So that's yeah. what I kind of... Yeah. I mean, I was talking uh, earlier to another podcast guest who came on. He, he runs a private college and he was talking about how he's, he, he's taken the bet that the change in education is moving to uh, the market's changing where Students, uh, it, it's going to, it might, like universities, uh, these institutes of learning are going to start looking into a, a freemium model almost because 
the ethereal way that you can do like a, a course online, right, with very low uh, infrastructure, right, it just changes the balance because now uh, you're competing for knowledge so it's from all across the world. You know, do I take, uh, you know, if I can take AO1 uh, Psych at not just the University of Toronto, but I can also, you know, take it at Harvard, I can also take it at, you know, all these different, uh, you right. know, har- all, all online for free, right? It, it suddenly becomes a blended environment, a competition, because once you, one university puts it for free, all the universities are in sign to open it up, right? And um, so not just universities, it's private colleges. So he's saying that, you know, the, it, it, just like a freemium model, just like a, um, um, just like a social network or just like those kind of models where you give out the knowledge for free, you teach for free, the students come in for free, but the top of the top, right? get uh it's like almost like a, almost like like a like a football team right that's that you know that play, places will pay the student to attend there pay for play almost it's like you're you're one oh. of the best cream of the crop you know we will pay you to be part of this and the way that the the, the institutions can monetize is corporates and governments paying them a subscription fee almost for the top tier right so it's like they're paying forward for three four years down the line to be able to pick the cream of the crop and the example he gave was like institutions like the CDL, which you mentioned earlier, right? With well, the CDL, it's a nonprofit, but you know, uh, founded at the, at, at the Institute of Rotman, is um, it, you know, it charges uh, corporates from investment investment uh, 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 what's it, investment funds to uh, multinationals a hundred thousand dollars a year to be part of its network for the privilege of being able to access okay. the kind of companies that come out of there. Right. And that kind of model of thinking for education, he's, he's looking to explore, right? Where corporate players, where, pe- where people who want the labor pools will pay in advance to, 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 um, to foster that kind of knowledge development, right? For the next generation of, the, of, the, uh, of their talent pool, right? Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? Do you ever see like a, a university ever pursuing that kind of uh, that model? Do you think uh, it could work? Well, I'm, um... I don't think that my opinion is necessarily what <laughs> one that matters much on on, on that. Um, so I'm going to uh, uh, respectfully Fair. decline to, to share on that one. Um, my my hope is that um, well, so so you have some courses that that makes a lot of sense with. Mm-hmm. And I could teach my media studies course that way to the world. Um, and we have it prior to the pandemic, there's been things to do with what are called MOOCs, right? Um, this is really, really large courses that are offered and they offer them out to other universities as well. And that's been part of the business model that's operated there. We also had MIT with their open university concept for a while. Um, uh, so these concepts are are there, um, but what you're talking about is I'm not sure how I feel about it. Not sure if it will entirely work. One of the things that universities have, of course, a tremendous uh, benefit to doing is when you need a research lab to actually get something, mm-hmm. you know, going. Yeah, you need a physical space, and it needs to have some top of the art, you know state-of-the-art machinery that's in it, some fairly expensive investment that's in it. I don't see the kind of thing that you're talking about as replacing that, but I do see some of the general introductory course type 
stuff is, is being done. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. I, I think time will tell. Um, one thing that's def- definitely changing, I, I think, and I hope, is that the introductory lecture is not going to be read from a podium. Uh, that kind of a thing. Yeah. But it, you're asking me about things that are kind of outside of my, of my course. space of, of knowledge. It's trying to get into your mind, Gray. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know on this one. Okay. Um, I really don't. I, I've, I've heard some of the same things that you've heard, but I really don't know about whether that can work. Um, I do, because I hear about dissatisfaction about people who are taking things from home and taking things on, on a computer. They, they want more experience. Yeah. There's, there's a value to actually being somewhere associating with new friends, Absolutely. making you know, new friends, and being excited about the exploration of what you're doing. That certainly was part of my university you know, experience. You know, when, when I talk to university students though these days, and I ask them to provide adjectives that go along with their experience, mm-hmm. they, they talk about stress. They talk about, um, you know, the, the burden of the workload, the, um, the anxiety that goes along with uh, needing to succeed and about how that is such a, a hard thing for them to, to deal with. I don't remember that myself as being part of my experience. I'm sure I was stressed when I was doing what I was doing, but I, I recall being a lot more excited about the, the learning and just thrilled to be in a new place with new people and just having a lot of excitement about it. Mm-hmm. So I'm hoping that in my answering your question, what will fight the idea of everything working along the lines of what we'll all do stuff online is that students want a different experience. They don't want the all online stuff. Mm -hmm. Now, I get the point that you said about, well, if I can take an introductory to psychology course at Harvard, why do I want to take it, you know, at, uh, you know, some other college down the road here? I I see, I, I, I see the point. But underlying it all is, I believe, the desire for the experience of this is my time in my life to be in a certain place with certain Mm -hmm. people to go through this experience together to share with those people on this experience to build this network and that that's vitally important to me so i'm thinking that that will carry forward in a way that will counter the idea of well we can just do everything online it's a a great big you know and then be done and these other places will know so I taught at Wilfrid Laurier for a short time. That is a a university that has tremendous school spirit. I mean, just extraordinary school spirit. Mm -hmm. And the people that go there, go there with that as sort of a burning passion in their heart. That that's what they want to be part of. And that part of their brand works, works really, really well. So if you're asking, do I think that places like you know like that would fail? 
because people can sign up for the larger courses and I can take a, a, a course out of London School of Economics. I can take another one out of Harvard. I can take one out of Berkeley. Well, sure. I mean, there's some risk to people doing some of that, but I think that if you're focused on your brand for providing student experience, you can maybe survive some of this. Yeah. And my AirPods are about to die. One has just kind of died on me. <laughs> so we've gone a good long time here. Yeah, we went on for quite a bit. You know, I, I wanted to take the Saturday to do uh, to do this because, um, you know, traditionally we do film on Wednesdays. We, we film four, four at a time, one hour each. And I, I wanted to give like a some time for this to unwind. And, and uh, you know, thank you for your time. And I think we can we can wrap up here. But I mean, one of the things, uh, key things I wanted to say was the reason I wanted to do this was really capture the mindset and also the drive behind Building Hub because it's been instrumental for me personally, you know, growing up in that space and spent most of my later, my 20s, mid to late 20s in the, going through the Hub experience and working together on, on, on uh, you know, on a, on a collaborative way to you know, solve complex problems really defined my path forward. And I'm not the only one. I've talked to so many people. You know, I kept in touch with a lot of alumni who came out of the hub from Axel to Dickshot, and everyone has something to say about how the the hub. You know, we're talking about university experience and like finding a tribe. The hub was the place. Finding a tribe. You know, finding was for, you know that was our, that was that was the tribe for us. You know, and, uh, mm -hmm. and you talked about this being a community. You know, that feeling really lingers. And one of the things I really appreciate for what you have done is to build and cultivate a community of people who otherwise wouldn't have had a place to go, you know, and, and, and to really drive support for everything that these people have done because this community is going on. And, you know, like you said, you know, just post COVID, like $5 million worth of value, right? There's all these uh, uh, people who've, who've gone through the hub, gone through this program, gone through this space who either might go and create other companies who might work in, in bigger firms to innovate within themselves, might go into government. Um, I, my hope is that the hub like continues, like uh, has a long, a long fruitful leg legacy where, you know, okay. it continues to build on top of this, you know, where uh, past uh, um, legacy students come back, you know, and create this kind of fruitful ecosystem because uh, we need more of this. I mean, this is, this is the uh, kind of. Let, let, let me say, that there have been some champions of the hub. And without them, it wouldn't exist. Mm -hmm. The first champion, Andrew Arafuzani. Of course. Right? Uh, was his brainchild to bring this about. So the chief administrative officer of the university. Another champion, my present boss, is Bernie Kratz, the VP research. Mm -hmm. And without his support, this wouldn't happen. The hub does not exist without the support, benefit, and, and appreciation of those who form the university at a very high level. I've been blessed. Now, have I brought something to this to make it work? Well, sure. They've given me somewhat pre-hand. So, um, yeah, I, I do take some credit, of course in terms of why it's thriving and doing as it's, as well as it's done, and of the success that's come through. But I also credit, of course, you, all of you, all of the people that have crossed the threshold to the hub, who have come to explore and to be part of and to just, you know, see what can be done to change the world and fix a problem that really 
they want to fix and make some money doing it while they're doing it. All that, you know, it's just, it's wonderful. So all the pieces have just kind of come together. So, yeah, thanks. Uh, it's, it's not all me. <laughs> um, it's some, some of me uh, making it work, but um, I tell you, um, it's really the people that you surround yourself with too. Right? Mm-hmm. And I, I couldn't possibly, um, you know, end this without mentioning Donovan Dell, mm-hmm. who's presently in the hub and phenomenal in terms of how he works with people. And Donovan is, I, I think he and I share that we are guilty of how we don't walk away, how we don't abandon, how we, uh, we work with people and there's that loyalty bond. We do not give up on people. And that's maybe, a, it's a strength and a weakness, same mm. time. <laughs> but for the benefit of the, those that come to the hub, it's by knowing that there's somebody that actually cares. And that is one of the central key pieces that makes the hub different as a space than many incubators is that the people that operate and run it care. I mean, deeply care about the people that are there and making them successful, um, making things work, reducing their stress, reducing their anxiety to the greatest degree we can um, and having fun doing things mm-hmm. and uh, along the way. So, yeah, um, I, I think that the hub is, is kind of unique. I think it's a well-kept secret at University of Toronto. Um, and I, I kind of enjoy that yeah. because, um, like I said, we have 50 companies in the hub right now. If I were to become any more visible, and I think your podcast might do that, but anyway, if I become seriously more <laughs> visible, I'll have more than I can possibly handle. So part of the success of the hub as well has been the number of startups and companies and entrepreneurs that it is working with. I can't handle a thousand companies mm-hmm. at one. Time. Of course, I can't handle hundreds at one time. Can't. So then it would become a different experience. I would have to be selective. I would have to say who can come in and who can't. As it is now, I try to operate for the University of Toronto Scarborough with those that come with an idea to explore and bring it to my door. And so far, I've been able to operate quite, quite well that way. And the university has stepped up to make that a reality. They've committed. We have a space. We have staff, we have budget, we have results that just speak for themselves. So um, I don't think that it's disappearing anytime soon. And hopefully we'll continue to have more successes along the way. You, by the way, are one of those successes. And in terms of what you're doing, in terms of the resilience that you represent, in terms of where you brought Bluemax, in terms of what you're doing, terms of what you've learned on your journey along the way and you've also taught me 
because in watching you succeed in terms of what you're doing, I have, of course, paid attention and drawn from that to understand that there are people that they excel in key areas of entrepreneurship, where if it's aimed in a particular avenue, a particular direction, they can be profoundly impactful and profoundly successful. And that's uh, along the lines of yourself. So anyway, thank you very much for tonight. It's yeah. been a pleasure. And, Definitely. Uh, yeah. Well, thank you for the kind words, Gray. And, and likewise, like uh, I'm, I'm super glad we met on that fateful day when I came knocking. Oh, yeah, for sure. And uh, yeah, definitely. So um, thank you again for the time. And everyone, this is 100th episode. This has been great. Thank you, Gray. Wow. Thank you.